Hello, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. In this podcast, I get to know creative misfits, underdogs, wild rebels and those people who have stuck one giant middle finger up to society and live life their way. I can't wait to introduce you to some people who embody what it means to be absolute champions. So prepare yourself as we dive in and meet some amazing individuals who have inspired, stood up for change and say, I am here. Today's hero is a screenwriter, director and hello, a bloody Oscar winner. I can say this with my hand, uh, you know, raised. We never imagined we would be rewarded for it. However, that just scratches the surface of this person's endless talent. He beautifully combines his creativity with activism and is one of the planet's most incredible storytellers. I do think it's my responsibility to keep finding those names and to lift them up, to share their stories so they're not forgotten and so that we don't start making the mistakes that folks of their generation made so we can keep moving forward. I am absolutely pumped to be in the company of greatness. It's the legend Dustin Lance Black. You know, I am so excited to talk to you. I've wanted to talk to you for some time. I I was just saying before then, I did bump into you once on a red carpet, but we were both distracted by one of the greatest storytellers, Armistead Morpin. Yeah, true story. However, talking of storytellers, I believe you're one of the greatest storytellers that our community's generation has ever seen. All right. Well, this has been a great interview. I I mean, I don't see why we should... (laughs) Go on. We shall not carry yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, that's very kind, and I, I'd like to to introduce you to a few of my critics, and uh, you can school them. Well, I have been a, a huge fan of your work, but also the, I guess, the themes that run through your work, and in particular, the sort of the LGBTQ storytelling that is such a, a huge factor in everything that you do. So, why is that so important to you? Well, motivation for a writer is something. That is ephemeral, that is, uh, comes and goes, it differs from writer to writer. You know, there, I know writers who really want to make the money or use it as escapism. And they put on capes and fangs and go out into outer space, which by the way, I love that. Uh, I, that's kind of the, my favorite stuff to watch. But for me, you know, it's, it's some of writing, at least to this point in my career, has almost been like therapy, which is, can I write the stories that I needed but couldn't find when I was a youngster. Uh, You know, if this is about doing heroic work, you ask the question, well, who's your hero? And I hope each day, and I fail each day, but I hope each day to be a hero to that kid who's still in there, still hungry for uh, an idea of safety, security, acceptance, love. You know, these are things that have just been missing for far too long from popular culture. And, and I know we feel like there's been this flood of queer stories being told, but it's going to take a deluge for decades to get to the point where we have enough of our stories told that it starts to paint an accurate portrait of who we have been, um, who we are, and where we might go. Don't you find that line of queer history, I guess, it takes such courage to tell those stories. And like you said, it takes a lot of progress to tell those stories. Unlike mainstream straight culture, we don't have the big book, religion. We don't have that genetic line of families that tell stories as we go on. So it's down to those great storytellers like yourself, like Armistead Morpin, to 
dip into our history and tell those stories? I mean, we have to do it, and we need a lot more than me and Armistead. Uh, and, and thankfully, we have, uh, you know, we're starting to find new voices uh, who, who are picking up stories that are, you know, from further flung corners of our existence and our being than, say, just San Francisco, which is yeah. really what Armistead and I have focused on so much. Um, and uh, so it, it, it does take more courage in some places than others. It takes less courage if you're. Uh, like myself, living in Los Angeles in the film business in San Francisco. Um, but it took a lot of courage that I didn't have yet when I was living in Texas to share stories like that. And for some queer people who are living in places where it's life and death. I mean, it's still the death penalty in many, exactly. many countries around the world. And, and so it's those writers, journalists, screenwriters, novelists, uh, professors, people writing our stories down, historians in, from these places where it's deadly, well, that's true courage. That's the kind of courage someone like Harvey Milk was showing back in the day or, um, you know, the Sally Gerhards of San Francisco also, um, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. Uh, these are people who knew that by writing down the stories of their foremothers and forefathers or even telling their own stories, at that time, you were illegal in the United States. You were considered immoral by uh, the churches, um, almost exclusively. And science said that, hey, we could try to change you through lobotomization or uh, electroshock therapy. And so, you know, that's real courage. That was real courage. I, you know, I just had a curiosity about where I came from and the people I was beginning to meet came from when I came out. Um, and there was a hole in me that I needed uh, to fill with my ancestors. And like you said, unlike other minorities, or I think it's what you're suggesting, that unlike other minorities, we're not always, in fact, very rarely born into homes with parents who understand what we're going to have to survive. Exactly. So they don't have the great advice of, hey, you know, you're going to hear these things and here's a way to see it. Um, they don't know. So who do we this turn to? And, and in my case, I think popularized movies, television shows, books, um, histories, these things can be life-saving because all of a sudden queer people can actually stand on firm ground. Can you imagine? I think it becomes somewhat of a queer awakening. I know I had that myself, you know, growing up in complete fear, not being able to find those stories, not being able to relate or see myself in anybody else. And then when all of a sudden you understand your line of history, your queer history, it's an awakening. It made me realise that I stand on, you know, shoulders of so many amazing people out there that I had no idea that they even exist. And I think that that's the power and the beauty of storytelling when it's done, done right and done by us as well, telling our own stories. And the thing is, we're making a lot of mistakes right now as a community. And they're not novel mistakes, the things, mistakes we've made in the past. And, uh, and, and we're actually, uh, in, in some ways, weakening our movement by repeating the mistakes of the past. So, you know, th there's, a, there's a fresh urgency this, to this work, I, I think. Uh, let's talk about, you know, the 60s and the 70s and even into some of the 80s when, you know, LGBTQ wasn't even a thing and we were incredibly divided. And, um, and, and what came of that? Well, it wasn't good. 
And so we might need to look at as we divide and subdivide ourselves and, and start to, uh, you know, grow animosity towards some who don't have it perhaps as bad as, as, as you do. Um, let's see if there's a different way of examining self, which is important work, examining our differences, which is critical work, without uh, starting to become divisive and divide this, this LGBT community that we need to hold together, even when we can't fucking stand each other, because sometimes we can't stand <laughs> you think each other. That that's a very convenient tool, though. I know exactly what you're, you're saying there, I think, about how there's a lot of internal fighting. You know, as a family, the LGBTQ arch family at the moment it does feel i mean i i definitely feel what you're talking about there's a lot of a lot of divisiveness you know it's peddled from the far right that we're all at odds with each other right now right you can see you can trace some of it to uh, literally the talking points of far right wing conservative groups in the united states who have started to fund certain wings of the lgbt community uh, empower them, embolden them, strengthen their voices so that we can exclude trans people. So we can get trans people to hate lesbians. And uh, so we can so we can divide ourselves from the feminist movement, which the queer movement has always been tied to and out of necessity and, 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 and rightfully so. Um, and these divisions aren't by chance. I mean, I remember first saying to some friends during the Supreme Court cases around marriage equality, I was like, look at Twitter. There's some really divisive, demonizing, hateful, internal fights happening in the LGBTQ community. Again, familiar uh, divisive words being used, but almost entirely fueled by fake profiles, clearly yeah. fake profiles. And in fact, now that we're more savvy, look back. And it has weakened us in some ways. So... Um, you know, I, I hope there comes a time when we can celebrate the examination of our differences because we are a very diverse family yeah, we and we're not going to agree on most things and we're going to have fights and squabbles, of course, but is there a way for us to stay unified in our, uh, in our work to make the lives of future generations of LGBTQ people better than ours have been? Can we unify around that? I think one thing that we as a community collectively can do is take trauma take hardship and create something that is positive that does have hope and and a light so do you remember that time that you first channeled your personal experiences and insights into something creative well i was um a really visual kid and a really crafty kid and um i drifted towards my mom's um world which was relief society the women's group in the mormon church not surprisingly and they were all into crafts and things and um, you know, so I just started building other worlds. What do you call them? Like, like you build a little world in a shoebox. Oh yeah, and like I, I know exactly what you mean. But it was, you know, these. I was just creating alternate worlds because mine was not um, pleasant. I mean, being a, a gay kid in the Mormon Church, and I knew that by age six, was not pleasant. Add in the fact that we were a military family, not pleasant. Add in the fact that our Mormon father had ran away, leaving three boys with a paralyzed mother who'd never driven a car, had a job, not pleasant. Um, you, you know, it, it goes on. Um, physical abuse from a first stepfather the Mormon church assigned to us. I just started building worlds in little shoeboxes. Um, you know, I, I would eventually grow up and say, hey, maybe, maybe we should make the world a little bit 
more suited for a shoebox, this sort of special safe place? <laughs> Is that possible to yeah. make the world more like a shoebox? <laughs> and so, you know, I've tried to start doing that and screenwriting is and and, and now directing and uh, producing is has been the way I'm doing it it's saying hey there's another way and sometimes that exists in the past sometimes we've been there already and we've just forgotten or that history has been erased purposefully uh, by legislation meaning if it's illegal to be gay if you can be fired for being gay if you can be kicked out of your home for being gay of course you're, you're likely you're less likely to write down that history including your own um, the ramifications are dire um, and so you know uh, I was born in a time when it was you know I started writing when it was still technically illegal to be gay in America but um, I wasn't terrifically worried in California. So I'd gotten to a safe enough place that I could start trying to share a vision of a path to a, a safer, stronger, uh, more loving place for, for queer people. That, you know, that's, that's why I do what I do. It doesn't make a lot of money uh, compared to the capes and things, and maybe one day <laughs> I'll get into that. Um, but for now, it's, it's quite, it's, you know, it's rewarding in other ways. I want to talk about now and where you are at now you're massively successful you've got a family you're married you're in demand so how do you make time or space now for creativity in your life you ask really good questions um i feel like i i um uh, you know create creativity is and we sort of just touched on this like is, is such a survival skill for me and so i think i get most creative in the times when things feel darkest so i actually kind of got quiet there for a few years when it seemed the pendulum for queer people was swinging forward and other people were picking up the mantle of storytelling and, and activism, I thought, well, great, I'll start a family. I can sort of, you know, disappear for a while, and that's fine. Um, but I, I, I have a real dread of where LGBTQ quality is going, um, and not just the headlines which shout that the pendulum is swinging backward, but that if we don't, if we don't, reignite you know our spirit which is one of locking arms with not just other queer people but other groups that are in trouble um, because perhaps they're seen as too different if we don't create those coalitions of the us's again we're in real trouble and my family's in real trouble so frankly it's now moving in if you see that you know all of a sudden there's tv shows and films lined up again that'll be coming out um, it's because I feel a sense of urgency. And if anything, I have to really prioritize my family because that is what is most important to me. So what I... <laughs> the, the creative time is always there and, and it, it comes at two in the morning and I have a little notepad beside my bed or if you ever see me walking around London, I have a little black you know, sketchbook in my hand all the time. It's always there. And, and I actually have to put it to sleep sometimes so that I can... Uh, go become the Lego building tickle monster that my son needs <laughs> and that I love being. Um, so it vacillates between like making time for creativity uh, or finding the motivation for that. And, and right now I'm hyper motivated and creatively. Uh, and now it's about making time for what's most important, what feeds my heart, which is my son and my husband. You mentioned before then about this time, this moment in time in history for LGBTQ people. And it, it's, uh, I'm glad we're talking today because I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I have a genuine fear and, and um, I just feel there's a moment of real unrest and it feels quite appropriate to be talking to you today as someone that won an Oscar 
for the film Milk because there's so many quotes that Harvey Milk said that feel so current. So they, they could be said today. You know, one in particular is it takes no compromise to give people their rights. Mm, and right. I think that it's wild to me that we're still justifying our existence and people are still living in fear and, and that that quote rings so true today. Unless, uh, you know, queer people become the majority, which is probably not going to happen, you know, we are different and we are a minority and I'm fine with that and we should be celebrated for that. But I, when you saw COVID hit, when we saw, you know, nations drifting into authoritarianism, when we see war being declared in Europe, I mean, Trumpism alone, which was fueling people's hate, liberating their hate and discriminatory nature. This is all about when we hit hard times and people feel like their lives are shrinking, getting smaller, getting less livable, their fear for their children's lives. They start to want to get taller again, get back to the same height. And sadly, they seem to make stepping stools out of minorities. They start to want to walk, step up onto someone's back to get back up onto some platform or stage where they feel whole again. Mm. And so yeah. when you see the world taking a dark turn, beware minorities. People will try to make you into their stepping you know, stones, the steps to a stage, a ladder of some sort. They'll dehumanize you. They'll push you down because it makes them feel better. This isn't all people, but far too many. And worse, there are those who do it without thinking, that's most. And then there are those authoritarian leaders who will say, hey, you want to feel better? Step on those guys. That's okay. I'm giving you permission. And we see that across the globe right now. Um, and so our rights are under attack because we are a minority. And frankly, they will always and forever be under attack from time to time. Uh, you know, I, I go on these speaking tours, particularly in the U.S., and the young people say, I'm exhausted. When does it end? When do we win? When is it over? And I say, well, never. And if you're tired, rest for a year or two. That's fine. But come back. It makes you stronger. It builds your soul. Mm. It makes you glow inside this work. It's okay yeah. to take a rest for a while, but come back. You know, in the same way, if you want big muscles and to be strong, you go to the gym, you come home, you feel, you know, sore the next day and tired, maybe, or at least I do. My husband doesn't. Um, but I do. And you might take a day off and then you come back. And guess what? You're getting stronger. Is it easy? No. It's hard work. Um, it's, it's hard as an activist or a storyteller or a queer person just trying to make headway. Um, it's hard not to personalize all the attacks. But you have to, you gotta like turn off the Twitter sometimes because most of those opinions aren't even true. They're written by, you know, people living in dark basements with little windows or bots um, and, and get on with it, get on with it. Uh, uh, but it's, uh, we're, never, we're never going to be done and that's okay. And the hard, if you can't do it, that's also okay because it is hard. If you need a break, take it, but please come back. And know that uh, each time you dip your toe in, even if it's just to give some money or to go on a march or to create a little coalition between yourself and another group that needed help, offering up your help to you know, another minority group in need, these things are going to make life better for a kid that's like you were once. 
It might never fuel you personally, but take joy in knowing that a little kid somewhere isn't going to have to experience the pain you did and the fear you did, thanks to you. Let that guide you. When I think about a time in history myself where I felt a lot of fear for our community, even though at that point in time it wasn't about on my community, yeah. it was about myself. It was the early 90s when the AIDS and HIV was very much everywhere and it was being fear-mongered onto us. And, um, and I remember one story in particular that really formed such... It just had such a lasting effect on me. And that was the story of Pedro Zamora, mm. who you made a film of in yeah. 2008, who was a cast member on Real World, or maybe you want to share, because I think there's a lot of people that don't know that story. And it's still just holds, you know, because I, I was so scared for so many years after that. So scared for my own life, watching that and watching what happened to Pedro. I get goosebumps if you were looking at my arms, just saying Pedro, because I think he was so courageous. And it was the early 90s when the real world got going. And just, just for people listening who don't know or weren't there or don't remember, reality series, were a, it was a new form. And MTV was really big into it. And there was a producing team, Jonathan Murray and Mary Ellis Bunham, and they decided they wanted to create this show called The Real World, which was, you know, it was this docu-series that was supposed to appeal to youngsters on MTV. Okay. Well, they said, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to make it look like their real world. And John Murray was insistent. That means we have to have one, at least one, queer person in the cast each season. That was a huge, revolutionary idea. Not only would we start to meet and see people who were of our family, they would be lifted up nationally under a title that said The Real World. And his theory was by reflecting youngsters' experiences back at them, meaning they probably were starting to meet some queer people. At least they were hearing about gay men mostly dying. Like all of a sudden we were allowed to exist in popular culture. This was so new. What Jonathan Murray did was revolution. And Pedro Zamora showed incredible courage because the first two seasons, New York and LA of the real world, had gay characters. And that was quite inspiring and funny and beautiful. Pedro Zamora knew he was dying of AIDS when he tried to get into the cast of the real world. Not only was he going to come out as a gay person to the country and the world, he was going to come out to the world as someone dying of AIDS. He knew his T-cells were, were shrinking day by day by day. And he wanted the nation to see this. He wanted them to get to know someone who was sick in that way. Um, and that kind of courage and, and self-confidence and an understanding that, you know, that we needed people to look to, to humanize our struggle in the heart of a 20-something, a kid. And, uh, and he did. If you watch the show, you know, you fall in love with him. He falls in love in the show. He gets married in the show. And he died the night the finale aired. He knew what he was doing. And it's one of the handful of moments, the many moments, I should say, that humanized what it was to be not only queer, but to be dying of AIDS to be living with AIDS, 
to be living with HIV. We met all those people, and all of a sudden it didn't feel so foreign. It felt like our brother or our neighbor. And uh, so why was it inspiring? Because he put a name and a face to it, and that took incredible courage. And frankly, it saved lives because I think, you know, out of fear, some people just weren't asking the questions or keeping themselves safe, and he was insistent that they do that, that, they, that young gay people not suffer the way he was suffering. Uh, to say to the world, hey, we are your sons. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I was just really inspired to, to tell that story and, and think. And I was a kid at the time. I actually wrote it way before 2008. I wrote it way before Milk. It just wasn't getting made. And it was Paris Barclay, who's a queer black filmmaker, who was quite renowned in Hollywood and television. And he said, I want to come out as HIV positive, and I want to do it by telling this story of Pedro Zamora. And so he and I cracked the story and sold it and set it up. And then other people made it. Frankly, I've never seen it, if I'm being honest. <gasps> I know. But that's not unusual. I just want to say I, I, I've, I've seen Milk like twice. So it's, it's hard for me to watch anything that I've made. Why is that? That's fascinating to me. Yeah, because, you know, I, I'm the seamstress. I see all the missed stitches. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> Going back to Pedro's story, I remember it was that humanization for me of seeing such a complex, beautiful story. Someone that, like you said, was knowing they were about to die, but also watching someone have such a beautiful love story on mm -hmm. camera. But also it was the other cast members and how they rallied around him and gave him support and friendship feels wild now, but I don't think it is wild, actually, for people that grew up in the 80s and 90s. I really did think that if I was going to come out as gay, I was going to die. That was yeah. really how a lot of us thought it was going to happen. So knowing that there was that love and support and there was another side to our narrative out there, it just, it, it was such a powerful piece of TV, you know, that I still think about to this day, actually. Just so powerful. Well, it it was one of my first experiences of, uh, of being both in the inside and outside of the queer community during this plague and this crisis. Because I was, I don't know if lucky enough, but I, I was lucky enough to be in theater already up in the Bay Area, in the Central Coast in San Francisco uh, in the 80s. And I just was watching my mentors disappear, literally, literally shrink uh, and, and very rapidly. And then they'd be gone. And I was a teenager, so at first people wouldn't tell me where they went. Uh, but I soon learned they would die, and some of them quite rapidly. And, um, and so I, I knew them as human beings. I knew them um, and their souls and their hearts and, and, and how valuable they were as human beings and, all, and artists. And, you know, I was also living in a home uh, that was very conservative with a mother who was an immunologist. So she was, my mother was counting T cells each day of people suffering from HIV and AIDS. And, you know, and she was not at that time uh, seeing gay people as full human beings. She was judgmental. And so, you know, when I saw Pedro and what Jonathan Murray and Mary Elspinum did with it and how they edited it as well and, and what Pedro in some ways was performing because um, he was very sick, but he was performing. Mm. Well, all of a sudden, it created this thing you could offer. I could say, Mom, look at this. Yeah, you know, to exactly. my family members, look at this. This is, it's not just Carposi sarcomas on people whose names you'll never know. This is a real person. This is someone's son. 
and get to know him and watch what happened to him. And maybe we should stop pretending that AIDS doesn't exist just because it's only killing gay people, mm. which was also not true. But that's what the attitude was in the United States. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people came around not only to positions of equality because of the real world, but also started to understand, hey, we need to do something about this AIDS thing, even if Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush refused to. Again, storytelling, making serious change, and you've continued to do that. You, you won a bloody Oscar for it with Milk, which... Mm. I've watched a gazillion times. I think that Sean Penn in it is just, there's nothing else. And I think it's just an amazing film. And I think stories that dip into history and it dip into someone that is literally a patron saint, you know, to our community, it's scary mm. to dip into a story that's so treasured from our community and do it justice. But I, I think not only did you do it justice, you know, you got to go and win a bloody Oscar for it. So. How did that right. feel? How did that feel? Because that's a bold move on your part to step well, out and go, I'm going to be the one that tells this story. Because no one, I, I mean, if you dial way back to when I started on it, which would have been like 2003 or something. I mean, nobody outside of San Francisco, nobody had heard of him. So there weren't streets named after him. Mm. Um, so the truth is he wasn't an icon at that moment. I think he'd had a moment when the documentary came out, which was fabulous, but that was, you know, 20 years before at this point. And so I just felt like my generation hadn't met him yet. And, and even the generation before me, and certainly younger folks had no clue. Um, so there wasn't actually all that much pressure because it was mostly, particularly in Hollywood, people saying, who, why? Yeah. And everyone turned it down. I mean, the only reason it got made is that we sort of cobbled together um, some financing and then Focus Features, who had just made Brokeback Mountain and made a lot of money off of it, said, actually, we'll take a chance on a gay movie because we've seen that they can be profitable. And we know this one's riskier because it's political. People sometimes get turned off by that. But they took a chance. Thank God for Brokeback Mountain or Milk would have never been made. It was pretty much in isolation that I researched that, wrote that, and then produced that. You know, finding Gus, finding Sean with Gus, you know, it was a real homegrown effort. And we dared to dream it might meet the screen. We certainly never thought about, and I can say this with my hand, uh, you know, raised. We never imagined we would be rewarded for it. So all of that was just unbelievable. So let's talk about that reward. Where is that Oscar? <laughs> he's, he's sitting over there. Oh, right? oh Over amazing. my shoulder, but he's way up high. What does it feel like? I know that's such a wild question. Like, yeah. what happens when that little kid that has used all of these struggles in his own life to tell stories, to make the world a better place, and then you're stood at the top of the mountain with the gold trophy? How does that feel? Uh, uh, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we were just talking about, uh, you know, uh, two introverted people, you and I, mm. if I may, you know, say so. Like, I wasn't growing up dreaming of getting in front of a billion people and making a speech. I, and if I was, it was a nightmare. So it was a, quite a moment because of what was happening in California and the United States. That was certainly a time much like now where the pendulum was swinging backward. And, and I knew there were, like I said, young people who would be tuning in and listening and perhaps I had a responsibility to do for them what I never had done for me, to say the things 
that they might need to hear that I never did. And in fact, it was my Mormon military conservative mother who the night before the Oscars reminded me of that. Um, but I mean, this is wild, Lance, is that, you, you know, a lot of people win that Oscar and go, do you know what? I'm going to Mauritius. You know, <laughs> I'm going to masturbate over myself for two weeks and just and just, and just big myself up. But maybe I did. Yeah, maybe you maybe did. Maybe I did. <laughs> but instead, I feel that you carried on, you use that platform because, you know, at the time, obviously marriage equality in the States and Proposition 8 was very prevalent. It was happening. Yeah. It was really there and it was affecting people all around and it was affecting you. So I love it when someone takes a glamorous moment and then gets straight back to work, <laughs> you know, and that's what you did. Yeah, I mean, I, I also, I was a kid, man. I mean, I was in my 20s when I was writing that and, and that's really young for a screenwriter. You know, screenwriters, we come into our own in our 50s, so I'm not even there yet. I, I don't think I made all the right choices, <laughs> to say the least. I did fuck up a lot. But the one thing I was grateful for was having that mom who has this moral compass and a sense of justice and hadn't come around to a position of equality through a lot of conversations and meeting people and, and her courage, really, to meet people and... She was the one who insisted that I fulfill the promise I made on that stage, which was that queer people would see marriage equality because that's what was on the ballot. And so, yeah, I worked really hard to make sure that promise I made on that very big stage was not a lie. And that was motivated. Yes, you know, of course, I, I, it was really meaningful to me, but I certainly also was going to listen to my mother. <laughs> and, and so I didn't make a whole lot uh, for a few years. And I didn't make things that were very good. You, if you're making a film, if you're writing a book, it, it demands your full attention, and then you're still lucky if you do anything of worth. And so if you've only got one eye on it, it's, man, don't look at my Rotten Tomatoes meter uh, in the five <laughs> years after All winning right. that Oscar, because well, it, is, it is rotten. Well, look, marriage equality, we're in a different place now. You've played a huge part in that, and obviously that's played a big part in your life. I talk about this all the time, actually, on the podcast. I love nothing more than love. I could talk about love till the end of time. I'm such Let's a do. lover. I'm such Let's a soppy do. tart. Me too. And Let's I, do that. I, the feeling I get from you and your very <laughs> special husband is that you have total respect for each other. You know, you come from these different industries, different countries, but the unity feels unbreakable. Yeah. Ten years in, I think I can now say definitively, yes. So when did you meet Tom? What, how did you meet him? Um... Gosh, it was 10 years ago, and he was in Los Angeles to, you know, present or pick up an award, and uh, a friend told me that he was having a dinner where some of the athletes from that award show would be there, and I was like, well, you know, I hate yeah. to miss that, even though I had a script. <laughs> I had a script due for J.J. Abrams the next day, which never got made, partly because of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, there he walked in incredibly late with some beautiful women with him who, and it all seemed quite intimate. And I thought, okay, well, I should go home. This is nothing good will come of this. Uh, and it was getting very late. And, uh, and, and then a friend across the table said, don't leave yet. He's Google searching you. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. And I didn't. I'll stick and, around for that. <laughs> one thing led to many others. And, you know, uh, 
you know, he put his number in my phone later that night with a winky face at, after it, like a little semicolon in a parentheses, yeah, as yeah, we yeah. used to do. And, um, <laughs> and I'd never heard of a straight man doing that. And so, uh, yeah, we, um, we got to know each other. And, and actually, the, 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 the sweet thing that happened that may not have happened had we not been separated by a continent and an ocean is uh, he had he left uh, to go home. And, and so we had to actually talk. And mm. uh, I, I don't remember what program we were using back then, but there was some video chat program, and we would just talk and talk and talk and text and text and text. And so by the time we finally saw each other again in person, months of conversations had and happened. And you really got to know each other. You're almost pen-palling. I mean, sending mixtapes. I knew him so well, and I also now know that he's very famous over here, and that's something I did not know back then in the United States. So I got to know Tom. Um, I wasn't getting to know Tom daily, and I think that made a difference to both of us. And he had no clue, nor did he seem to care, what my resume was uh, and what I had done, and that was refreshing for me. And we had both, he had won his first Olympic medal, I had won the Oscar, and we were both in a depression, which we didn't dare tell anyone about, because that sounds absurd. Um, and, uh, but he got it, and I got it, and we both lost someone very close to us, my, my big brother and his father, in the, um, you know, in the year just prior, and, uh, and we were able to share those feelings around finding great success, but not being able to share it with someone who you love so much. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was just a wonderful turn of luck. Um, and, and, I'm, and, you know, that movie for J.J. probably would have sucked anyway, so who cares? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 10 years on, which is such an accomplishment, but how do you protect a very, you know, like you said, your, your, the, the level of fame has only got bigger. Um, how do you protect such a public relationship and keep those special moments to yourselves? Well, that is something that's gotten increasingly difficult, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, here in the UK, I don't think I have much of a profile. Um, and, cert- and having lived here for many years now, I, you know, whatever profile I had in the US has kind of gone down. And, you know, as a kid who likes to build worlds in shoeboxes, that's fine by me. Um, and, but Tom... Um, yeah, he's, he gets a lot of attention, and, and most of it is incredibly positive, and I mean that. Um, but it is true that there are certain folks, particularly here in London, where there's a boundarylessness, and people can be invasive and dismissive of your partner. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, can, it has, on occasion here, um, become a little dangerous. And I wish there were better protections for couples or a culture that respected people's privacy just a little bit more. I mean, if someone comes up and says, you're Tom Daly, can I have a picture? Well, that's lovely. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. That's amazing. And you have a conversation and we've had such moving conversations. But there are some people who, uh, uh, you know, they have more of a wolf-like instinct and they want to separate you and divide. and, And you see that here. So that's hard. But it doesn't, it just means that uh, you are more selective about where you go and who you spend time with. Um, and uh, because I think you hit the nail on the head, you have to protect the relationship between Tom and Lance and now Robbie. 
not Tom Daly and Dustin Lance Black. Right. Uh, you have to protect that, and sometimes that just means getting away from it all for a while, spending time together, making that a priority. Um, and it means perhaps your social time out and about shrinks a bit in protection of that. Do you find that, you know, you've created that world for the young version of you and the work that you've done, and now, obviously, you and Tom have a son, and you're now trying to create the world that you want your son to live in, right? Yeah, I, I mean, create it, protect it. I right. mean, if you want to, you know, if you want to start giving a damn about climate change, have a kid. It's not in theory anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to leave for this little thing? What are they going to have to bear? Um, so yeah, you, you know, you want to create something that's better for them. And what a terrifying time to be a parent when it seems that it's going to get worse uh, if we don't really act uh, now and aggressively um, on things like climate, on things like equality in the United States, on things like guns and the lunacy of American gun law. Um, and, you know, there's a reason we're here. Is everything perfect in the UK? Oh, I don't think so, nor do I think yeah. you'll find anyone right now who says so. But at least children don't have to go through active shooter drills here. And, uh, and that's important. So, you know, sometimes the attention here uh, on celebrities can, in my opinion and in my experience, having, you know, been with celebrities in the US, here it can be boundaryless in a way that's dangerous. And that's hard. But on the upside, I don't have to explain to my child why they had to hide under a desk in a drill each month. Yeah, that's uh, And they can learn. And so in that way, you know, hats off to the United Kingdom for being sensible about such weapons. Really, truly. Lance, this has been joyous. I could talk to you forever. It's amazing to talk to someone that's got such amazing things to say, amazing stories, amazing opinions. Um, we speak to a lot of people on this podcast, amazing rebels, underdogs, and heroes. Um, is there anyone that you can think of that we maybe don't know about that should be celebrated? Maybe an unsung hero. Oh, my gosh. Well, but the thing is, is, I mean, I get tearful when I think about this. There are so many, and that's a crime. It's what we were talking about just a bit ago. We have four mothers and four fathers of every kind from our community, our diverse community, who worked so hard and fought so hard and suffered so much to get us to the place we are today, mm -hmm. and we don't know their names. Their names have been buried in fear and mm -hmm. shame in legislation that made it nearly impossible to speak up and to not be lobotomized, to be subjected to shock therapy, uh, chemical castration, jail. Our family tree, our queer family tree has been buried in violence of every kind. And so I, so I can't name one, uh, but I do think it's my responsibility twofold. One, to keep finding those names and to lift them up, to share their stories so they're not forgotten and so that we don't start keep making the mistakes that folks of their generation made so we can keep moving forward. Um, and my other job is as a producer, which is to find other queer voices uh, to tell the stories of the people they're inspired by so that one day these little stones we're creating in movies like Pedro or, or Milk 
uh, or so many uh, others now I'm so grateful for can form the mosaic of who we are. We are decades from that, even if we worked incredibly hard, even if we got dozens of green lights a year for biopics. We are generations from that, but we need that mosaic. And people who look at just the milk story and say, oh, there it is, and no, it's not. That is a grain of sand uh, that needs to become a portrait of who we are. So I can't, I, as much as I would like to, the list would go on and on and on, and I would still leave people out. And I don't give a shit if I'm offending people by leaving people out. I'm upset myself that I don't know the names yet, and so should you be. You should be furious at those who came before, who outlawed our lives. And so, um, in addition to all of those still nameless people who we will get to know because I'm dedicated, and others are dedicated uh, to excavating their history, I will also say Tom's mom, Nana Debs, in our family is an unsung hero, <laughs> and thank God for her, because I don't know how we would do it all uh, without occasionally being able to say, get on a train from Plymouth, we need help. help. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all of the queer people who came before, plus Nana Debs, that's my hero list. Well, as a fellow introvert that plays in boxes, I'm, I'm very grateful for the work that you've done, and I hope you get told that you know Thanks. enough That's because I think that the stories that you've told have been so impactful for not only you know my generation generation before me so I'm very very grateful for you and I'm very happy that you came on today this has been wonderful thank you very much yeah thank you very much for having me I appreciate it